welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management in Austin, Texas. Today on our podcast, we'd like to welcome Adam Singer. Adam was Google Analytics Evangelist number one, and he and his team helped build out one of the largest online communities in history to promote GA. Whether you're an aspiring executive, a corporate leader, or a founder, Adam brings a valuable perspective built on experience. So I hope you'll join me and listen in as we chop it up with Adam Singer. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Adam, and thank you for joining us. I thought we would start with maybe some baseline information on you, just some background, and maybe uh, maybe hit on a few of those seminal moments in your career. Sure. So um, I'm a digital marketing professional. I've been uh, sharing ideas online about digital marketing and PR and digital trends since probably 2002, 2003. So I'm dating myself. I'm an old. Um, Yeah. And through my career, I've worked both on the agency side um, as a consultant for brands like Berkshire Hathaway's International Dairy Queen to um, Darden, which is Red Lobster and Olive Garden and back in the day, Smoky Bones. Uh, So a lot of a lot of uh, consumer then went on to do a bunch of consulting for the more boring B2B brands like McKesson and Marketo and some of the like companies that do like monitor mounts and enterprise hotels and all that stuff. Um, and then eventually I went to a company called Google in Mountain View. Maybe you've heard of them. I was there for about a decade. Um, then spent some time in life sciences and startup landia and now i'm here post pandemic not working anywhere i'm but employed and doing whatever i want so that's i think you're all caught up i thought you'd be the perfect person to come on and speak to you know several different groups the emerging executive that's kind of looking to land that first career gig uh the founder and the ceo of the startup and and small company and kind of the team leader or somebody that's working through maybe a transition where they're moving from one one place to the next. So lots of different uh, areas that you're an expert on. So I thought you could uh, help shine some light on some of those things. So again, thank you for joining us. I, I was reading your uh, Substack, which is really awesome. Uh, guys, y'all can subscribe to it. It's only 50 bucks a year. Just, just do it. Um, and you shared a story about your friend, Eric, who was interviewed with a VC firm. Uh, can you share that story with the audience and kind of what that means for someone trying to land that career starting position? Yeah, I love that story. And Eric is a good friend of mine that um, I met many years ago, incidentally enough, through a marketing campaign I did for a client. Eric wrote a blog post about what I had done to get a client like all this awareness and conversions from, from tech nerds back in the day. And so we became friends over that. And so anyway, um, long story short is Eric had always wanted to work at a venture capital firm. He is many posts on his blog about venture capital and 
you know, he wasn't an insider, right? He was just a regular guy. He was, he was working, you know, on the, on the, on the corporate side in tech and it is a jump, right? Like VCs don't just want to hire just anyone. Um, and he, he had gotten himself an interview with Union Square Ventures. They're run by Fred Wilson in New York. They've, you know, there are early checks to Twitter, uh, you know, GeoCities, um, you know, Coinbase, all of these, like, so they, they were early money to so many different things. Fred is just like a luminary in, in the industry. And so Eric was sitting down with one of the partners, Brett, and he had his resume in front of him. And he was like, here, Brett, you know, here's my resume, you know, just in case you don't have it. And Brett basically said to Eric, hey, man, you can hold on to it. And Eric was kind of puzzled and, you know, he's a curious guy. So he's like, well, you know what, do you have all this memorized? Like, why don't you want this? And Brett's like, I mean, a lot of people come in here with resumes. I've already seen it. But the interesting thing about you is you've written, you know, over 500 blog posts about venture capital and startups. And so I already know how you think. And so let's have a discussion from there. And so, you know, they, they weren't concerned with Eric's perfect back of the, the baseball card and, you know, all the pretty formatting and the 12 point font resume, they were more concerned with how he viewed the world. And that was what mattered. And that, you know, from that discussion was, you know, why Eric was hired and brought in as a venture partner. And I, I don't think they cared about anything, but just understanding how he processed the world. And I think that discussion was more important than anything else. I mean, I guess the resume gets your foot in the door, but he never would have gotten the job if he hadn't put in that that sort of extra work that a lot of people don't think to do, and so I think I think for um, you know these sort of top high performance firms, you need to go beyond a resume unless your resume is so shit hot, and you know you were like engineer number like ten at at Uber or whatever. Okay, sure, you know that might get you in the door, but not very few of us are engineer number ten at Uber, and so for the rest of us, we have to think, well, how can we shortcut? someone's trust about us to, you know, give us a shot. And um, I think sharing ideas online through a blog, through a newsletter, through, uh, thank you for promoting mine, by the way, James, through a podcast like this, through video, through even, you know, just doing industry events, whether online or offline, right? Like you're showing that you care about your craft and sector, no matter what it is. And I think it's so underrated. And so few do it and like the cost really is just showing up, right? That's right. And you refer to it, I think, as the process of building your own sandbox is kind of that that nice first step or ongoing step really in career development. Talk us through what that means to you and, and why that's so important. Yeah. So a sandbox is super important because as you go into your career and you work for, you know, an established company or a startup or wherever you are, unless you're employed like one or two, in which case your company is the sandbox, um, it's good to have a place that you can experiment with freely. You can ship code, content, um, you know, products for an e-commerce store, whatever, without having to raise your hand and ask permission. And you know, there's reasons for that, right? If you're at a big company, you can't just you, you can't just unilaterally decide I'm going to make the website look like this, or I'm going to launch X feature for my app, right? You you have to be you have to do that as part of a team. But now that anyone, the cost of shipping anything you want is zero now with no code, with, you know, ability for anyone to run a Shopify store, start a blog, you know, start a Twitter account, whatever it is. Um, that's like a sandbox for you that you can run experiments on, um, try ideas out for basically the cost of zero dollars, get feedback. And so that's, that, that's, that's 
a feedback mechanism that's going to help you improve and iterate really fast, a lot faster than if you're always stuck shipping in someone else's environment. And look, I'm not saying everyone needs a startup, but if you create enough sandbox projects, you might decide for yourself, actually, it's not that hard to start things. Maybe this is the catalyst for me to make a startup. But even if you don't want to work for someone else, it will still help you like level up in whatever you're doing faster, at least in the knowledge economy, right? Like for a lot of this stuff, it, it's still kind of expensive, though not as much to do things like, you know, like a lab experiment in your house. But now there's actually kits to like do CRISPR in your house too. So I think, you know, there are other sectors that are picking up on the importance of giving people, you know, the freedom and ability to run and ship things, which um, I, I mean, the, and your, and your sandbox could your sandbox could just be a, a passion project too. It doesn't necessarily have to directly relate to oh totally the industry. I mean, it's one of the things I, I I remember about you is I mean I knew your your background and all those sorts of things, but when we started interacting on Twitter, I thought what you did with uh, the music that you put together was like was one of the most engaging things for me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I I don't think there's I actually personally don't think there's any value in me creating music, you know, as a passion project for the world. I think the returns on that are like zero for myself personally or professionally and more like, you know, that's just a creative problem that I work on. I don't know that that's going to help my situation from a professional standpoint, but not everything you do has to, right? Like we can have things that, that make us human, right? We can share our recipes online. We can, you know, if we have a screenplay, we can try and get that published, right? Like, um, and, and that's fun too. I think the problem there is the, when people start to think that our passion projects can be what put food on the table, you know, that the history of markets say yeah, that, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if you look at the history of trade, there, there's never been a time in human history that what you do has to inter intersect the market at where the market values it, or you're basically, you know, everyone will just, you know, do anything they want and it, it, there's no value created. So um, that's like an adult adult way to think about this. And the cool thing is, is that now we all have so much time. If you work in corporate America, you can kill yourself and do 70, 80 hour weeks. I don't know why you would do that when we have automation, we have, you know, great outsourcing and help. We have, you know, teams that basically like your highest value is to make a few really good decisions and make sure they get executed right, not do a billion things. And this frees up your time for, you know, to be able to participate in your industry or create music or do all these other things. And guess what? That's net positive for the economy because no matter what your craft is, that you're really into cooking, you're going to spend a lot on La Crusette. You're going to, you know, get all of these, you know, support all these local merchants and get like local spices and stuff like you're helping the economy there. So it's like you shouldn't just be, you know, work 24 seven, which is something a lot of young people um, have always had a problem with. Like in America, we're obsessed sure. with work. It's not, it's not generational, it's everyone. We all like to work too much. And I think like for my teams, I tell people, like I encourage people to have side projects, passion projects, sandbox projects, whatever those are. Well, no, when I, when I was growing up, the quantity of work was always celebrated a lot more than the quality. Yeah, it's not great. And there's a lot of that yeah. when you read stories about how people want us all to return to office. I'm like, but why does that matter? What matters is this dashboard on, you know, the results we're giving or, you know, if you're in marketing, how many, you know, new sales or if you're in customer service, how many support tickets answered and, you know, the the satisfaction of those, right? There, There's all sorts of ways to measure the, the results and not the activity. And so I think like I... 
that's a, such a dated mindset is you need to physically be here. And I'm not saying you shouldn't physically see your team and have QBRs and have offsites and whatnot, but you probably don't need to sit next to them every day to just ship your regular work once you have your planning session done. So. And now you were leading a team of about, I guess, 300 in the Bay Area when uh, I don't I don't think you went in search of Google. I think Google found you. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so Google is they, they have a good referral program wherein, you know, they acknowledge that smart people know smart people. And so um, I was referred in by a friend of mine, Lewis Gray. He's still at Google. And um, yeah, it's it's it's. That's, that's really the, if you want to work at a big tech company, find someone, I, I didn't even want to work there. They, they, they emailed me, but if you wanted to work there, I would stock, not like aggressively stock, but find <laughs> um, so, someone in the org you want to work on, on LinkedIn and send them a note and be like, Hey, you know, I'm really interested in your team, you know, network with them a bit. And at some point, you know, you can ask them to refer you in and um, they get a bonus for it too. They're like incentivized to find, you know, find talent. So yeah, sorry if you hear my dog barking. He's... No, that, no, that's okay. That adds to the uh, authenticity of the podcast. I like it. Awesome. Now, is that Dash the Dingo? Is that? That, that is. Um, so he is, he's still the only animal I've ever followed on Twitter. So. Awesome. Yeah, he's, he's fun. And I originally created that account um, just to get more people aware of rescue dogs and they all need homes and you know, the rescue dog is loyal straight away. We also just rescued a puppy. Really sad story. Someone left um, a bunch of puppies on the side of the road outside of Austin. And oh so, God. yeah, and, you know, we gave one of them a home. And um, the puppy is a lot to train, right? Like, that's like, like, it's a, the lift is, I don't have kids, but at the beginning, like, you're taking that dog out, like, twice in the middle of the night, you know, you have to be with it 24 seven. Like it, it's a whole thing. And the rescue dog straight away, they're already trained to whatever extent. But when, when you, when you bring that dog into your home and you treat it right and you do all of the correct things, that dog, the rescue dog will bond with you straight away, even if it's got a little bit of a checkered past. Um, so I'm like such a fan they're, and their dogs are such great animals. So I had cats growing up. They're not as, they're not as loyal. They're not as trainable. They kind of just do their own thing, whereas the dogs are, um, they're really a family member and they're really intelligent, right? If you get, like, Dash is an Australian cattle dog, so he's a pretty smart dog breed. So, yeah. Well, cool. So now, I guess when you joined Google, you were probably either one of the first analytics you know, evangelists or you, you might have been the first. What, what was it like to be at the forefront of all that? Yeah, so I was um, analytics advocate one of eventually four. And so they either thought that role was important or they were slowly trying to replace me. I don't know which. <laughs> um, but basically the the point of the function of, of that role was I saw a gap because Google had plenty of developer advocates. And so those are people that basically help out the very large you know, ecosystem of thousands of developers building on Google's APIs and products and whatnot. And that's great. But where does all the money at Google come from? From the ads org, not from the developer org. Um, a lot of the stuff the developer org does help scale out revenue, but it's still not, there, there were no, there, there was no one explicitly helping um, marketers and advertisers with, with analytics and measurement. And so 
Um, I made the case that, hey guys, anyone can run marketing for Google Analytics. Everyone lo loves GA already. It's like not a hard job. Um, I should come and sit with the product team and figure out how to actually educate users, which is different than marketing. So we created a bunch of analytics MOOCs, massive open online courses for, you know, measurement basics, measure, advanced measurement, e-commerce, mobile, all these different areas of, of measurement to help educate marketers and get them to use our tools better. Because we know that if you use measurement tools better, you would see that, you know, Google ads are a high quality source of traffic. So you should buy more Google ads. That's where your revenue is coming from. But we are Switzerland products. So, you know, we will tell you if Facebook's working. We'll tell you if Twitter's working. We'll tell you if email's working. We'll tell you if, you know, PR is working. Whatever's happening for your company, an analytics tool will tell you, you know, those answers without bias. And yeah, I, I was happy to work there. For, you, and your, you and your team essentially built out that, that community on social media, didn't you? Yeah. And, you know, we, we had a, a, you know, a forum where analysts and marketers could pose questions. We had social accounts, all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, um, it's probably the biggest, um, probably the biggest analyst community and B2B user base of, of any product. Um, you know, there, there's 80% of the internet uses Google analytics on their sites and apps, right? It's something like that. And so, yeah, it I worked on that for, you know, about seven years. And I think that's the longest I stayed at a company. I think that's probably, they, they got the most they're going to get out of me. I'm, I don't, I, I don't know if I could stay at a company 10 years. We'll see if that happens, but um, I'm total ADHD. So needed a new challenge. And yeah, I, I had done everything I could do for them at that point. Anyway, um, their communities were built, all the processes were built. They're iterating on the product. So there wasn't much, like once we sort of, Create just time to onboard people and get them smart about the product and do all the end product help and have the right like email flows and education. And um, it, there was not much for me to do. I mean, I could have done more conferences for them, but and there are a few people at Google who basically stay there and just do the thought leadership stuff. But I can't I can't do that every day. It's it's yeah. not for me. Well, let's drill down on analytics for a minute. How important do you think it is for today's business leaders and just to have a baseline familiarity with, with analytics and what are some ways they can acquire that knowledge? I know with your early on with the, the program that you guys set up to, it was basically a free program to allow people to get into that. What, what's the, what's the pathway today for somebody to do that? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely take the, if you search in Google for Google analytics, MOOC, MOOC stands for massive open online course. I would take that course because it goes through the, like the, the framework of how you should think about measurements um, and not just for marketing, but for, you know, customer service and sales for uh, developers, for all because different stakeholders do different things with analytics. Right. So um, yeah. And th there's tons of free resources online. Um, really the, the way to not screw up analytics for if, if you're totally new is, all of the modern measurement tools, you know, get to the business outcome, right? So set up what actually matters for you. And that's not going to be page views and visits to your site or Twitter followers. That's going to be if, you know, people are having consulting services, people filling out the form, raising their hand, saying, I need services, and then actually signing a contract with you. So measure all the way to the, when they sign the contract, not just the form. So get to that end outcome of what's important for your business. And uh, if you need to hire help on setting up tracking with that, if there's like, you know, a CRM system you're using and you can't figure out how to get that to, to talk to like your ad tech stack, because 
you want all those things to 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 speak with each other so you can you know you can tell facebook and google hey find me more leads like this one lead that actually you know signed up and 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 started paying me money right because the the machine learning systems can do that if you have them talk to each other so you can make your marketing a lot easier by making sure that you're tracking all the way to what success is what you want from the internet um and you know using that as a signal for wherever you're going to market um tw twitter and reddit and pinterest aren't so good at taking that data but facebook and google are um and yeah and then also tracking like all the indicators of success like what like what are the if you're running a newsletter um you know you want to see how many new free subscribers you have and then figure out like per every 100 free subscribers do i convert you know two people to pay it if I ask them or five people, like what does that number look like? And now what that can do is give you the goalposts that, that you need to get to uh, for the numbers that are further down the line that matter more from an economic perspective. So you do need to understand the KPIs too, and, you know, just do a little math and figure out like, cause, cause ultimately you have to, you have to move the um, top of funnel to be able to impact the bottom of the funnel. Um, but you have to know if it's worth it too. You have to know like, is this working out for me? Is there something along the way I could improve? And so- and you, you talk about the importance of having a measurement plan before you get started in, in these sorts of things. I, it seems like a lot of companies get started on that top funnel activity before they actually have that measurement plan in place. Do you, you find that happening? And, oh, or is it not happening as much as it used to? No, it still happens. and. The only good part is it is always easier to figure out what to do with traffic, attention, and followers than it is if you have none of those things. So it's not bad if you went out and, you know, if, if you were like a small business and, you know, you had a local restaurant and you went on like, you know, you were interviewed by all of your local food blogs, you went on your local podcast, you did YouTube videos, and, and you just you weren't actually measuring how many people that was bringing in the door. Um, I think it's still okay. And a good thing you did those things. Those seem like all obvious things a local restaurant tour should do. Um, so it's like not a bad thing for you to go out and do digital marketing, but it's a better thing if, okay, now that you've started to do it, you, you, you've thought through some of these, some of these measurement things and there's online offline measurement solutions too. So if you were that restaurateur, what if like for, podcast listeners for, you know, Joe's local podcast, use this, um, this code when, when you get to the restaurant and, you know, tell your server, you know, Hey, I want 20% off because I was on Joe's podcast and they have a code there. You could actually see is being on Joe's podcast, doing anything for me, or is it just making my ego feel good to talk about how great our, you know, our, how great our dishes are. So there, there's ways to get creative and measure that. And like you said, it all comes back to having a plan, which I would still, I would still, if I were a local business or small business or new company, I would still bias to like, even if you didn't know it was working to at least go out there and start doing some marketing. Um, Cause again, it's easier to figure out what to do with some attention somewhere in a, some brand than nothing. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, it's really the hard to pivot. If, it's hard to pivot if you don't ever start. Yeah. And the measurement zealot in me says, yeah, I got everything perfect. But on the other hand, the marketer in me says, no, cause it's also not, not, ever all perfectly solvable and attributable. You know, I could have seen an ad and then gone to your site via, you know, Google search and then Google's getting the credit, but really, you know, that local radio ad was, was the, was the impetus for someone to query me. So it's, it's a forever insolv 
solvable problem at the attribution uh, perspective, which is why you should just ship, right? And you talk about the importance of integrating uh, storytelling and data to drive engagement. Yeah. So Can you give an know, example of who's doing that well and, and why is it such a struggle for so many companies? I, I mean, I think there's the joke that data is the new oil and everyone's obsessing over who has user data. Now we've actually flipped it back. Now oil is the new data, I guess, because now oil <laughs> is expensive <laughs> That's again. That's true. Uh, but, you know, I, I think a lot of companies have decided that, oh, you know, there's a new startup that exists that can let us do, you know, X with our data and they'll just, they'll just spin it up and start using it without too much thought behind, you know, is this really the right use of data? A good example of this recently on the what not to do side is probably um, Applebee's running an ad right smack in the middle of the Ukraine war coverage. And people were like laughing because they were showing like the air raid siren and then it cut to commercial and it was, it was Applebee's. So if your Applebee's is a brand, like, do you want your ad there? And that, you know, all these ads now, on, especially on the streaming platforms, which I, I watch my, you know, news through streaming, those are all programmatic. So yeah, you're you're letting the all the robots make all the decisions. Um, does that make sense for your brand? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. So um, there, there's another example of that is on like, um, you know, the the war coverage is a, is just such a great example. So you could if you were if you were a marketer, you could easily have paused your ads for you know whatever it is you are running on like like the day that all of that, you know, the fighting broke out. And that was like, you, you don't want your brand in that stream, right? Because people, you're just going to upset people. And now that all of these, there's a convergence of our personal, uh, you know, professional, social, global media into this one stream. Like there's probably certain times you you don't want, you know, your brand to be saying, oh, look how great I am, right? And right. Um, and that's okay. And so, yeah, there, there, there's, there's the human element of how you want to use data. Um, and then on the creative side, I ultimately think that great ad creative, like, you know, the, the ads that we all remember, like a great Coke ad or the, you know, the 1984 Apple ad that everyone remembers with the guy with the hammer, right? Um, the, those ads were done by creative teams who understand their users. So what you want to do is get really good data, audience data, um, you know, user segmentation data, you know, understand all your buyer personas, all the... That's just fancy marketing talk for the different types of people who buy your product. Um, once you understand those really well and, and you have you have analytics on them, um, then you can have the creative people go into a room. And the good thing is, is data gives you uh, data gives you boundaries, right? So if you've never if if you've never written a song or you've never um, you know written an essay or you've never done anything creatively, you need some structure to define what you're going to put on that page. And so your data will give you the boundaries and now you can use your human creativity to work within those boundaries. And so that's how a great team would use data. They wouldn't just have machine learning algorithms come up with what your next ad is. You know, you, there are startups that do that now. Um, I would never use them because it, if, if the robots can make better ads than your team, you should fire the whole team and fire just use the, the robots. <laughs> yeah, they're worthless. And, you know, or maybe put them to work in something else. But if they are better, then that's that's a problem for you. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there, there's use data as, 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 as guidelines for whatever you're doing. And that applies to a lot of things. 
I think another hot button issue you referred to recently is is the use of real time data to drive direction. I mean, we see it in the media world and and yeah. big tech quite a bit. I don't see it as much, or I don't I don't see it as evident uh, outside of those areas. How can companies, large and small, begin to use that real time data? Yeah. So, of course, you know every single media outlet is using real time to populate what the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or CNN or any site, you know, they're they're trying to capture the zeitgeist of a given day and be the stories that people share and talk about. Um, but they have a newsroom. They, they have a whole newsroom and they have an editorial team that's working on that 24-7. So if you're a smaller business, you probably don't have a huge team and maybe not even smaller business, just not a you know, 24-7 news operation. You, you're probably not structured to use real time in real time. And that's okay. So there are, you know, there, there are APIs with real-time analytics um, that you can use to help inform site content, help, you know, serve specific things to specific users. Um, you don't have to sit there in real-time to use data in real-time. Um, an example of that from my blog post where I wrote on real-time analytics is this cool vacation rental company called Twitty. They do vacation rentals on the East Coast. You can get a beautiful beach house for you and your family. Uh, you know, five bedrooms for like, you know, a couple thousand for a whole week. And it's a great vacation spot. You know, you can bring bring your extended family, have a good time. It's I, I really like them. Um, and what they did is they used real-time data to inform their search listings. So if you were searching for, you know, um, a specific type of vacation home, say you wanted like, you wanted to have a huge bachelor party and you wanted like a nine bedroom place on the, you know, on the coast somewhere. Um, it would show underneath that listing, you know, there are seven other people, there are 50 other people, there are four other people browsing this listing or listings like this at the same time. And so they actually, they did that. There's no human work required. It was just a little bit of code that anyone could find and copy paste. You can do this for your own site. And that resulted in about a 12% increase in uh, conversion and revenue lift for their site. So they're creating a sense of urgency that you should make this conversion now. And we all know people are distracted or, you know, people are not always ready, ready to buy. And so anything you can do to nudge people to get them over the finish line from a conversion standpoint is great. And so that's, you know, one example of real-time uh, data usage. There's all sorts of things that aren't real-time oriented that you could do on your site that are really easy as well. Things like A-B testing different calls to action. So, you know, for some, it's like, you know, things like don't miss out on the latest thing, right? Like that's like a marketing, uh, a classic marketing tagline, create a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out, or, you know, this, this offer ends in two weeks, right? Like create a temporal nature around it. And even if they're not going to convert right now, you can give them some time frame that they'll convert or a spring special. And the cool part about that is you can, um, if you are going to do like a spring special, all of your emails you send out, all your ads you send out, you can tag those to spring special. You can tag those to that campaign. And then in analytics, you can see over time, did running the spring special result in actual users who went on to purchase more times from me? Or did they just come in for that one special? And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to run this campaign again because these are people who just wanted a discount. So you can answer questions like that if you for 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 running specials. Uh, we talked about measurement planning. You have to you have to do measurement planning first if you want to be data driven in, in that way. So um, you know for like an e-commerce shop, 
I would do measurement planning up front. If you're the small business or restaurant, it's not as important because it's never going to be perfect and you probably don't need to sweat as much. Um, so there, there's, you know, cases where it matters more and, matter, and matters less to worry about up front. And then that concept of determining ROI, you know, the, the concept seems simple enough in practice. Uh, but I think a lot of a lot of people, in, you know, in mid-sized companies and smaller companies really struggle with that. How do they, how do they quantify, uh, you know, how should ROI be defined and, and how should it be measured and how does that help you? Um, how does it help you pivot when maybe you don't get the results you were looking for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know how you run a business without understanding the, the return, on, you know, things like return on ad spend, right? Like, why, why would you continue to give Google or Facebook or NBC or whoever um, more money if you can't answer definitively what the return of that spend was? And so um, I think a lot of the business world is conditioned to think that marketing is just a price you pay for doing business. It's a cost center. And I think the really sophisticated teams understand that it's a revenue generator and to understand what that means. And, and it, it, it should, it should flip your thinking on marketing, right? You should think of marketing as fuel on the fire of your business, not I have to do this. And if you do that, you'll get better marketers who are more excited to work on you than those who think, you know, they're pestering you every time they ask for, for more budget on more spend. So I think if, if you, if you can figure that out, it's in the interest of your marketing teams and, it's in the interest of your 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 C-suite, your executive teams. You know, your CEO and CFO shouldn't be like they should see marketing as 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 a lever for the business and not something that they sort of have to do. And how can we make this cheaper? You, if 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 the C-suite isn't coming to you as a marketer and asking, you know, how how much more can we spend because we want to create you know X or Y more demand, then that's a problem. I I, I will only work at companies now that understand it is an investment and it's not, you know, this intangible immeasurable thing. Cause that's just not true anymore. Oh, that's such a good point, man. That, that is, that is right on point. I, I see so many people who see that as a constrained spend item and we're only going to spend this much time or this much money or this much resource on it. And then it works and they think, well, wow, we, instead of wanting to do more of it, they're just happy that it worked in this kind <laughs> of uh it's kind of insane, but uh, let's talk about transition because you've changed locations, companies, roles. I mean, the days of probably spending your entire career in one place or with one company are mostly over, I think. Yeah. How do you know when to say when and what are some tips that you would give people for handling uh, for handling transition? It's not easy. Yeah, I think I think the important part is knowing when it is time. Um, James, you and I have both been in investments where we held on too long, right? Like it's, it's a lesson you learn. Well, I'm in one right now. Right. Yeah. It's all the time. Yeah. Um, so the trick is to being really good as an investor is knowing when to cut your losers and take your ego out of the picture. And so I actually think I'm better at that professionally than I am with investing. I've only been investing for like seriously for like 10 years, which isn't long. Like it actually cracks me up. Everyone thinks they're an investing guru for spending like a year or two playing meme stocks or crypto. I'm like, you're so fucked. <laughs> you just don't know it yet. You're anyway, they'll learn. But from a, from a, from a um, working perspective, um, cause I've been working on my own web projects and for other people for a while, I figured out for me, if I feel like in the last 
six months, I haven't learned more than I learned in the previous year. There's some mental calculus that I do. Basically, if I feel like I am somewhere where I am not learning more in the present than I was in the past during, you know, previous instances where I was really learning and growing, then it's probably time to start to figure out where to go next. It's a hard thing to put I, I like the six month thing. I, I, it's as almost I like saying, a personalized Moore's law in your, yeah, on your, as, on your as I was saying, cause I've said it before. I want to like rethink the six month thing because there are definitely situations now in a remote only world. And this hasn't happened to me, but it's happened to friends where they were hired really quickly because the company was growing and the, it was clear the management team was either toxic, didn't know what they were doing, or they'd taken on too much funds, but really the demand wasn't there. And like that, like they saw the company was existentially screwed. Like in those situations, I think you can leave after a month or two. If, if you decide, look, these guys are, these guys are in real trouble or you're at like a WeWork type situation. I don't think it matters how long you've been there. I think if you know, get the hell out. And then wherever you work next, if, if they don't understand that you were yourself aware enough to extricate yourself from a bad situation, then they're idiots. So you shouldn't work there either. Um, yeah, I mean, that, so, that should be a good thing. The fact right, that you're, you're self-aware you're, enough to, to get out. Like, you're cutting off a bad bet. So I the the value that you get from work, people don't get this. The value that you get from work isn't in in your compensation. You think it is, but it's not. It's in it's in your ability to learn from other people. And um that's the thing that actually stops me from going full solopreneur. Um there's a lot of people who do that, but I actually learn a lot from other people in teams and I'm such an introvert. If I was a solopreneur, I might never talk to anyone else. And that would suck, right? Because it's it's so great to get to learn from other people. Like what a wonderful thing. And in a remote world, you can you can work with so many different companies and teams. And so I think the value you get back is is like osmosis, learning from those other people, seeing how they do things, seeing what you're like, oh yeah, that that's really smart. I never would have thought about doing it that way. And then like applying all the good things to your processes and practice. Um, and then, you know, if you're not learning from them or you feel like the deal isn't good, then it's time for you to go. And, and, you know, maybe they can make it up to you financially or with more skin in the game. I'm also biased to companies that give you skin in the game. If you have skin in the game somewhere and it's meaningful and, you know, you, you want to see it through. And even if you're not necessarily learning, although if it's going well, I think you will be learning, um, I, I think that's another reason to stay, not necessarily just salary or comp. Look, the world's a wash of money. Money's cheap. You can get it anywhere. It's not It's not really if, – if, if you focus on that, you're going to be less happy and over a longer term have less money anyway than if you just focus on you know experiences for growth. Yeah, I think everybody worries about maybe having a stagnant wealth but don't think as much about you know the, the cost of having a stagnant personal wealth experience and stagnant knowledge and things of that nature. So I think that's really good. It matters way more. I mean, if if you're, you know, I, I, there's a great quote, um, education is in preparation for life. It's life itself. I, I agree with that. And all education means is, you know, you're, you're learning, you're challenging yourself, like all the happy, all the happy people I know that are, that are like my age T plus like 10 or 20 years, like they're still working. They're, participating in their community. They're doing something the world needs. They're creating a product people love. Like they're not just sitting by the pool. All the people I know that are retired early are miserable. They're like unhappy or they drink too much or, you know, they're very hedonistic. And, and like, I, I think, you know, 
take vacations and have breaks, but also if you don't have meaning in your life, like that sucks. You're, you're, you're just setting yourself up to be a miserable human. Yeah. Well, let, let's stay on the subject of, of, of pivots and talk about uh, what do you think that companies are going to have to do? What pivots are they going to have to make to engage with tomorrow's consumers? Cause it seems to me the consumer of today is quite different than maybe the consumer was five years ago. And I wonder what, what that'll be like five years from now. What changes do you see on the horizon? Yeah, so the five-year question is hard to answer. Um, everything is pretty insane right now. Um, people are some some people are afraid and anxious, rightfully so. Some people are, you know, put their head in the sand and are like, oh, you know, all this global conflict part doesn't matter. It's probably a middle ground. Um, yeah, it's uh, answering the five-year question out is harder, but I think to your point on changing preference is real. So I. I've actually been working mostly on B2B companies or um, Lex was a previous company I was working with. They're offering like individual shares of commercial real estate. Like mm-hmm. for, for, for like these types of like investment companies, it's, it's, it's also still a B2B sale because it's features and benefits. It's not, you know, it's not something that's impacted by a trend in, in consumer preference as much because there's immutable things like people want to make money. So um, that's not as impacted, but I think that your company just being aware of the of, of the of the water in which we swim, um, you know, there's a quote from David Foster Wallace of you know, there's two fish swimming swimming in a fishbowl, and one fish says to the other fish, "How's the water?" And the fish replies, "What the hell is water?" Right. <laughs> the point of that story, though, is a lot of these a lot of bigger companies get trapped swimming in their, in their fishbowl, right? They're in their little bubble and they don't realize the world has changed around them, whether, you know, that manifests as, um, you know, still having a product that hasn't been modernized or, and that can mean a lot of things, right? So Dollar Shave Club, which basically shipped a D to C razor where they got so much traction that I think Gillette or PG&E, one of the big shaving companies had to buy them the only thing that they did is offered recurring um, subscription-based shavers because guys, we don't remember to buy, you know, new razor blades. So that they were basically just answering the market of what the market wanted, and I don't think that was a hard one to see that there should have been a D2C razor company. I think there's probably a whole handful of other D2C businesses that people could create that haven't been built yet. Um, I think that's a blue ocean, but I think that's one example of you know consumer preference you probably could have seen. A long time, Tim Way. Uh, Jeff Bezos likes to say, "I like they build for um, what they know isn't going to change for the next ten years or twenty years. Like they look at the world, they're like, what's not going to change?' And one thing they saw was e-commerce. They're like, e-commerce isn't going to change. So instead of you know chasing their tails on social or blockchain or whatever other buzzwords of the day, they're like, we're just going to make our e-commerce experience awesome. The other thing they did quietly is AWS, obviously with their hosting business, right. which is a monster. But that's another one." Like hosting's not going to change. That's, that's not something that, you know, they started building on building, you know, these products like 20 years ago and today they're awesome. And so um, that's another way to, cause predicting the future is really hard. I think that's a hard thing to get right. So I, I tend to agree with Bezos um, on the, like what won't change and what can you build an awesome experience on? And I think the other thing is whatever your market is today, like what could you do to shore it up and to solidify your moat? And I think, if you can do that, you can insulate yourself from change. You can have people love you so much and have so much of a history with them that they're not going to care about X or Y 
startup doing something slightly different. They're going to be like, well, screw these guys. I have so much loyalty to, to, to this other company over here because they've given 50% of their proceeds to dog shelters, right? Like there's any number of ways you could, you could do that. Um, yeah. so that, that's I, an excellent point because in our business and in, in wealth management and other, you know, other personal relationship industries, I mean, our most important clients are our current ones. hundred uh, percent. And, and so the, the important thing for us that we're always thinking about is how do we drive the ROI on that relationship? How do they feel? How do they feel value and how are we more valuable to them? And frankly, how are they valuable to us too? It's kind of the same thing you were talking about as a, as a business, if we're not learning on a, on an extended curve, if we're not learning faster tomorrow than we were yesterday, uh, you know, there's probably something that we're missing. Uh, but I think that's excellent advice in terms of think about the things that won't change and focus on making the experience really, really excellent. Uh, in that area, that's one of those, that's one of those simple things that, uh, you're like, wow, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> uh, Visa has built one of the most valuable companies in the world, just just doing that. So, yeah. So, with that in mind, what's next for you? What 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 elements in that next opportunity have to be there for you to say yes? Yeah, I think a good creative challenge, um, product and team that that I believe in and you know want to support long term. And I think um, for me and for anyone you know, you understand this better than than anyone else. I think. Um, I, I mentioned this before, I think having skin in the game, right. I, I want to have meaningful basis points. And I think like, that's like the right carrot to offer for people. Um, some people go the other way and they think in a remote world, you should just, you know, pay as much as you can. People should have, you know, out, outsized salary instead. And I, I tend to not think that way as much. I don't necessarily think it's a better world if we're all basically Uber drivers, but for X, um, and not to say there's anything wrong with being an Uber driver. I think that's a great, you know, it's an amazing thing that you can do and anyone, you know, can have personal freedom to do it. But I think that, um, I think for certain industries, um, you want ownership and maybe even for Uber drivers, you know, like there's a way that they could have, you know, some ownership. Actually, they can't, they can have Uber stock. One thing, see, like, it's funny, the blockchain people talk about ownership, but in a lot of ways, like, you already could have ownership in, in most of the world through public markets, through, you know, investment. So I don't, I don't really see that as a problem to, to solve with some of the newer tools. Um, but, but I do think that for professionals, for career professionals, um, you know, that notion of ownership is important. Well, Adam, Hey, thank you very much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate making the time for us. Of course. This was fun. Thank you, James. And that does it for this episode of A Voice from the Hills. Thanks so much to Adam Singer for joining us. Thanks to Caitlin and Annabelle for voiceovers and music. Thanks to Priam and Yael for editing and producing. And just a reminder, you can follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever and whatever platform you prefer. Thank you again for engaging with us. And remember, we can only do our best work when you are here to listen.